Let's pray. Father, we pray that as you descended on the tabernacle and filled it with your presence, that we who are indwelt by the Spirit might, might know your presence now. That is, you spoke from the most holy place and gave your revelation to your people. We pray that now you would speak by your word that we might hear your will, that we might follow you, trust you, love you, obey you, delight in you. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. If you have your Bible, I'd invite you to open to the book of Exodus. Uh, if you're not there already, if you're not there already, I don't know what you've been doing. This is basically all we've read today. There will be several places in the book of Exodus uh, today, but to start, it might be best for you to turn to Exodus 29. Uh, you'll remember that last week we began uh, a series entitled God With Us, the, the goal of which is to show how the whole story of the Bible is the story of the presence of God. Last week we saw both how humanity was created for fellowship uh, in and with the presence of God, and then how sin alienated us from God, causing us to be cast out, exiled from His presence. And as a result, we, we find that the, the question that drives the story of the Bible is this. How can people who have been exiled from God's life-giving presence come again to dwell in perfect eternal fellowship with Him? How can God be with us and we with Him? And in some sense, that might not seem uh, like a huge problem, especially if you're not a Christian and if you don't really think too much about God, it might not seem like a big deal. So we have a broken relationship with God. Well, the world is full of broken relationships and people go on just fine. Yes, those can be very challenging, uh, painful things, broken relationships, broken relationships with parents or children or, or friends, but you can continue to live. The difference is a broken relationship with God is not like that. A broken relationship with God is more like a broken relationship between your lungs and oxygen. Cut off oxygen from your lungs, you can't survive. So it is with God. And so the question of how can we dwell with the life-giving presence of God, again, is not just a question about relational wholeness, it's a question about our very existence. After Adam and Eve sinned, God could have just cut them loose, just destroyed them then and there, and He would have been just to do so. But He doesn't. And in boundless, matchless grace, God works to restore fellowship with the people that He created for His presence. And, and from Genesis 3 on, the story of the Bible is about God's plan to redeem us in order that He might dwell among us, and that He might be our God, and that we might be His people, and the we might enjoy the unbroken, unhindered, unending fellowship with Him that He desires. 
One of the principal events that takes place as God enacts this plan of redemption that began, really began in the garden immediately after this, the first sin, one of the, the principal events that takes place is the exodus. We would be hard-pressed to find a, a, an event of greater significance in the Old Testament. It sets the agenda for everything that comes after it. The Scriptures are constantly drawing our attention back to this event where God saved His people out of slavery in Egypt. Or they're looking forward to God's work in the future, which is quite often cast in the language of being a new exodus. The exodus is foundational for the story of the Bible and the identity of God's people. What I want to do this morning is to look at the four aspects of this story of Exodus and how it relates to this theme of the presence of God and, and continues to move the story of the Bible forward towards the coming of Jesus Christ. God with us, pleased as man with men to dwell, Jesus our Emmanuel, and why his coming to be with us and dwell among us is so significant as the, the center of this grand biblical narrative. So the four aspects of the story we'll be looking at today are as follows. In the Exodus story, we find a people redeemed for God's presence, a place designed for God's presence, a sin that threatens God's presence, and a remaining barrier to God's presence. And I will confess here at the start that the title that I've given the sermon, Tabernacle and Temple, is a bit misleading. It might more accurately be titled Tabernacle and Tabernacle. It's really what we'll be focusing on this morning. We'll talk about the temple a little bit, and really the temple is just the tabernacle on steroids. It's just a bigger, more permanent version of the tabernacle. But as we'll see, the purpose and design of both is basically the same. So that's my excuse. We'll begin first with, in the story of the Exodus, how we see a people who are redeemed for God's presence. Even if you're not familiar with the Bible, you may be familiar with the basic contours of the Exodus story. Perhaps you've seen the movie, The Ten Commandments, in which Charlton Heston plays Charlton Heston playing Moses. It's the basic flow of the story right. The people of Israel are enslaved in Egypt. God hears their cries for deliverance, and Moses is called by God to lead the people out of Egypt, a rescue that, that he will facilitate by bringing plagues upon the Egyptians until they let Israel go. Pharaoh, of course, is loath to release his slave labor and so refuses and refuses until eventually, at the Passover, he relents. It allows Israel to leave. And this, this whole story culminates, of course, with the miraculous crossing of the Red Sea when God causes the sea to part. Israel crosses over on dry ground, and then God causes the waters to crash down on the pursuing Egyptian army and destroy it. And Israel ends up on the eastern shore of the sea, freed from captivity. But a question I want us to think about now is, why does this happen? For what purpose... To what end does God bring the people out of Egypt? And there are many things that we read in the, the Bible about God's purposes in the Exodus. At various points in the book, we read that God rescues Israel because they are suffering and in slavery. We see something about their, their need to be rescued. Or we see that He rescues them because He's being faithful to His covenant promises. 
that he made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We also see that he's going to rescue them by doing signs and wonders in order that his glory might be displayed before all people and they will know that he is the Lord. But none of those quite answer the so that question. I will rescue them so that. For what purpose, to what end, does God bring his people out of Egypt? And he tells us in Exodus 29. As God is describing the plans for building the tabernacle, he says this, starting in verse 43 of Exodus 29. There, at the tabernacle... I will meet with the people of Israel, and it shall be sanctified by my glory. Verse 45, I will dwell among the people of Israel and will be their God, and they shall know that I am the Lord their God, who brought them out of the land of Egypt, that I might dwell among them. The purpose of the exodus, the end for which God redeemed his people from their slavery, was so that he might dwell among them. Israel is a people redeemed for God's presence. This makes sense of something we read back in Exodus 15. Exodus 15 is called the Song of the Sea. It happens right after the crossing of the Red Sea. It's a hymn of praise to God that the Israelites sang after God had rescued them and brought them through the sea. In Exodus 15, 13, we read, You have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them by your strength to your holy abode, your holy dwelling. And then verse 17, You will bring them in and plant them on your own mountain, the place, O Lord, which you have made for your abode, for your dwelling, the sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. God delivered Israel in order that he might bring them and plant them in the place that he has made for his dwelling. It's a fascinating statement because it echoes what we read in Genesis 2, the Lord planting, same word, a garden, a place for his dwelling and placing the man there. But like the garden, God doesn't intend to just put his people in this place. Dwelling in the presence of God means a covenant relationship. What we read in Exodus 29 describes just that using this covenantal language. I will dwell among the people of Israel and will be their God. And through the rest of the Bible, we'll read variations of this formula. I will be their God They will be my people, and I will dwell among them. Sometimes it's only two of the three. Sometimes it's in a different order, but it's a consistent feature throughout the Old Testament. When we read, I will be their God, they will be my people, and I will dwell among them, we are reading covenant vows that God makes to his people. And these vows are not just about the benefits that his people will receive. He doesn't just say, I will give them forgiveness of sins. I will give them a new heart. I will give them eternal life. Those things are true. They're blessings of the covenant. But this threefold vow shows that at the heart of God's covenant promises is a relationship of presence, which as we saw last week is the very thing that we were created for. I want you to notice an implication here. If God redeemed people in order to dwell among them, 
then for God to do so is not his obligation, it's his delight. It's not something he's forced into as an undesirable but unavoidable consequence of the covenant promises he's making. It's not as if he's saying, I want to forgive them, but in order for me to do so, I have to dwell among them. I really don't want to do that, but it's necessary. That's not what he says. He, he wants to do it. He loves to do it. He, he saves us for it. If you're a Christian, God redeemed you because he desires and delights to dwell with you. And not just with you, but skipping ahead a little bit in the story, but by his spirit to dwell in you eternally. He didn't save you because he had to, and his spirit doesn't dwell in you because he's forced to. You're not the manger he's obliged to stay in because there's no room at the inn. He delights to dwell within you, and that's not because of anything in you, but entirely because he just chooses to do so out of his abundant grace and love. God saves people in order that he might dwell with them at the heart of God's covenant promises is a relationship of his presence. Israel is a people, we see in Exodus, redeemed for God's presence. But that doesn't mean that Israel is therefore going to enjoy the kind of unhindered, immediate fellowship that Adam and Eve had enjoyed in the garden before the fall. God cannot dwell in Israel's midst unless there is a a sanctified sanctuary in which to dwell, a, a sacred space that is kept holy and set apart for the purpose of God's presence. And this is necessary because God is still holy and Israel, as we will see very shortly, still is not. So if God is going to dwell in this covenant relationship among his people, it will have to be in a place designed for his presence, a place designed for his presence. See this in Exodus 25, we find Moses back on Mount Sinai and God says to him, let them, the people of Israel, make me a sanctuary so that I may dwell in their midst. The implication is that without this sanctuary, he would not be able to dwell in their midst. This is the means by which God can be present with them. And note that rather than God expecting the Israelites to, to read his mind and come up with a way for him to dwell in their midst or devising something on their own, he, he graciously tells them exactly what's required, reinforcing the, the fact that it is his desire to be present with them. And so he does what is necessary in order to make it possible. The tabernacle, the Hebrew word just means the dwelling place, was to be at the center of Israel's camp. Twelve tribes arrayed around it, three on each side. It was to symbolize that the worship of the God who dwelt among them was to be the center of Israel's life. Uh, the tabernacle, this elaborate uh, tent-like structure was designed with uh, sort of concentric rings of holiness. The closer you got to the center, the more sacred the space became. The fewer people who could enter, the more stringent the regulations for entering. 
And at the very center of the tabernacle, and later the, the temple, at the very center was what was called the most holy place, or the holy of holies. And this inner sanctuary was shaped like a perfect cube. And it was here that the Ark of the Covenant was to be kept. It was to be the, the place of God's presence. Symbolically speaking, it was, in effect, God's throne room. Several times in the Old Testament, we read prayers in which God is addressed as the one who sits enthroned upon the cherubim, a reference to the cherubim on the Ark of the Covenant. The, the tabernacle and the most holy place in particular was the place of God's enthronement as Israel's king. It was also the place of God's revelation. In Exodus 25, 22, God tells Moses, there, in the most holy place, I will meet you. And from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim that are on the ark of the testimony, I will speak with you about all that I will give you in commandment for the people of Israel. And so from the most holy place, the place of God's presence, God would speak and his word would go out, quite literally from the center of Israel's camp. The tabernacle was also the place of God's mediation, the place in which God would meet with Moses and in which Moses would represent the people to God and from which Moses would represent God to the people. So the tabernacle is absolutely central, both literally and figuratively, to Israel's life. From Exodus 25 to 31, we get instructions for the building and operation of the tabernacle. And there's a similar stretch of instructions in 1 Kings about the temple that Solomon was building in Jerusalem. The main difference between the two is that the tabernacle was small and mobile, and the temple was big and fixed, but as I said before, the basic purpose and design of each was the same. And it was, it was a design that was intentionally evocative of Eden, the first sanctuary. If you read about the construction of both the tabernacle and the temple, you're going to find numerous references to things like pure gold, precious stones like onyx used in the construction, both of which were specifically mentioned as being in Eden in Genesis Two, if you're reading Genesis 2, it's this sort of odd thing that they say. They say, God planted a garden, and there's gold there, and the gold is good. And there's also onyx stone, and then they just move on to something else. Like, that's interesting. Why would they include that there? I think partly because it's those things that are included in the, the building of the tabernacle, the temple. We also read about the imagery inside the tabernacle being quite botanical, it was even more true in the temple where the walls were engraved with images of palm trees and open flowers. Throughout the sanctuary, there are images of the, the cherubim woven into the curtains, evoking the memory of the cherubim placed at the entrance to the garden. Speaking of the entrance, the entrance to both the tabernacle and the temple was to be on the east, just like Eden. Maybe most strikingly, both inside the tabernacle and later the temple was to be a golden lampstand that had seven flames would be kept burning perpetually. And as I mentioned last week, we see repeatedly in Scripture that fire is representative of God's holy presence. We saw that earlier as we read in Exodus, as Moses went up to the mountain, the people of Israel saw the presence, the glory of the Lord as a consuming fire. And so it was to be with this lampstand, seven flames, symbolic of the fullness of God's presence with His people. 
But there's more than that. The lampstand itself, and the Hebrew word is menorah, but it's not the, the seven-pronged candelabra. It's those eight-pronged candelabra that we're familiar with. In Exodus 25, we read that this lampstand was designed to look much more like a tree. Branches, almond blossoms, flowers. And it's been suggested with good reason that the lampstand itself was to be reminiscent of the tree of life. For God's presence is life itself. And all of this combines together to teach us that the tabernacle was supposed to be a, a sort of mobile garden of Eden where God would again dwell in covenant relationship with His people. And while it would not be the immediate, unhindered, perfect fellowship that Adam and Eve had enjoyed before the fall, it would be a real relationship. He would be their God. They would be His people. And He would dwell among them. So through Exodus 31, Moses is up on the mountain getting the, the blueprints to make a place for God's presence with Israel. Meanwhile, down in Whoville, things are not going great. Before God even comes to dwell among them, as he's just told Moses he intends, the very purpose for which he saved them, Israel is doing something that threatens to drive them away from God's presence again. In Exodus 32, and you may want to turn there, Exodus 32, Moses has been on Mount Sinai for 40 days, and the people are getting restless. And their first thought is, we're done waiting at the foot of this mountain. We're just going to make our own gods and get going. And like his first parents, Adam and Eve, Aaron, Moses' brother, the high priest, doesn't listen to God's word. Israel has already received the Ten Commandments at this point. It's confirmed covenant with God. Aaron doesn't listen to God's word, but he listens to the voice of temptation, and he makes a golden calf for Israel to worship, saying, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And then the people throw a raucous party that they blasphemously call a feast to the Lord as they worship the golden calf. It seems they'd rather not deal with this fearsome holy God on Sinai. They, they don't like that they can't come to God on their own terms, that He and He alone gets to determine how He is to be approached and worshipped. They prefer a God they can see, one who is tame enough, it seems, for them to touch, one that they can access without any difficulty, rather than the Holy One who speaks with Moses, veiled in cloud and fire. We do the same thing, don't we? We'd prefer a domesticated God who speaks and thinks and acts generally like us rather than the God of majestic glory and holiness who reveals himself to us in the Bible, who always thinks and speaks and does what is good and right but is not like us. We'll say things like, well, I like to think of God as, or my God is like, and isn't it fascinating how often that God is really just a bigger version of us? Who are we really worshiping? 
But friends, God has not given us the freedom to imagine him to be whoever we want him to be or to approach him however we decide is best. He has revealed himself to be who he is. Remember when Moses meets him on Sinai in Exodus 3, God, yes, God, what is your name? And he says, I am who I am. God has revealed himself to be who he is and ultimately has done so in the person of Jesus Christ. So Jesus could say that if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. And he's told us exactly how men and women can and should worship him, exactly how they can have fellowship with him. And just as there was one way to worship God rightly in Israel, one tabernacle, one altar, one most holy place, so now there is only one door into the presence of God, and it is Jesus Christ. No one comes to God, he says, but through me. We see the same thing here in Exodus. God gets to reveal who he is and determine how we approach him. He tells Israel how to do it, which in itself is an act of incredible mercy that shows he truly does desire to dwell with them. And yet, here are the people of Israel deciding to do exactly the opposite Rather than listening to God's word about who he is and what he requires, they're just making it up as they go along. We might say that they're following their hearts. We would do well to remember that our hearts are broken compasses. We can follow them, but they won't lead us in the right direction. As we see here with Israel, our hearts are deceitful and desperately wicked. God sees all of this unfolding and tells Moses that in response, he's going to destroy the people of Israel. It was the just punishment for their rebellion. You might think that sounds rather harsh, and if so, you need to think about whether or not you think of God's holiness as holy as he really is and how you think about the sinfulness of sin. God says, just like Adam and Eve in the day that they broke covenant with God, they would surely die. Moses desperately intercedes with God on, on their behalf, appealing to God's own faithfulness to his covenant. And God relents because, because he is a God who is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. He will not utterly destroy the people of Israel grace. He will even allow them to go to the land that he promised them, grace upon grace. But, God says, he won't be going with them. Exodus 33, verse 1, the Lord said to Moses, depart, go up from here, you and the people whom you have brought up out of the land of Egypt to the land of which I swore to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, saying to your offspring I will give it. I will send an angel before you. I will drive out the Canaanites and the Amorites and the Hittites and the Perizzites and the Hivites and the Jebusites. Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go up among you, lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people." He says, you may go, I'll give you the land, but I'm not going along, because if I do, my holiness will consume you. You might think that the Israelites would actually be okay with this arrangement. 
they haven't shown themselves to be all that fond of God at this point. They've been terrified of Him ever since they got to Sinai. They told Moses, you speak to Him. Don't, don't let Him speak to us because we'll die. They just narrowly avoided being totally destroyed by Him. And even so, many Israelites did die for their sin. And so you could maybe understand if they were ready to take Him up on this deal. But notice that both Moses and the people recognized that this would be a devastating outcome. Exodus 33, 4, when the people heard this disastrous word, they mourned. Despite everything, they knew that being free from God's presence was not a blessing, it was a curse. Moses again intercedes with the Lord in Exodus 33, 15. He pleads, Lord, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. For how shall I know that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? That is what makes Israel a distinct people is that God is present in their midst. Of all peoples, it is among them that God has chosen to make His dwelling. And it is not worth it to go to the promised land if the promising God is not with them, among them. It's not worth getting the benefits of the covenant if the relationship of the covenant is not there. And again, God accepts Moses' entreaty and says, my presence will go with you. More grace. Following this, Israel gets to work building the tabernacle according to God's instructions. That fills out the rest of the book of Exodus until we get to chapter 40. As we read earlier in the service, Moses finishes the work and the tabernacle is set up. And then we reach what I would argue is the climax of the book of Exodus. And we're probably accustomed to think of the climactic moment in Exodus as the crossing of the Red Sea in Exodus 14. Certainly quite important, not tremendous. To, to mention dramatic, it makes for good movies. And yet after the crossing of the Red Sea, there's another 25 chapters in Exodus. I wonder if we take Exodus 14 as the climax of the story because we don't know exactly what to do with the rest of Exodus, all the laws and instructions. But if we're tracking not just with the storyline of Exodus, but the storyline of the Bible reaching back to Eden, then perhaps we can see why the real climax of the book is here at the end. The crossing of the Red Sea in Exodus 14 is a crucial part of the story, but it isn't the goal. Receiving the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20 is extraordinarily important for the, the story of Exodus and for the story of the whole Bible, but it's not the goal. The goal to which everything in Exodus is moving, the purpose for which God brought His people out of Israel is found here in Exodus 40. The tabernacle is completed, the Ark of the Covenant placed in the, the most holy place, and then... Verse 34, the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. 
Moses has already been meeting with God. Earlier it says that Moses spoke with God like a friend face to face. And yet here even Moses can't stand in the presence of God. The purpose for which God had brought Israel out of slavery in Egypt comes to pass. God takes up residence in Israel's midst. He dwells again among his people in the sanctuary of his presence in order to have a a covenant relationship with them. He will be their God. They will be his people. And he will dwell among them. We should note that the same thing happens hundreds of years Years later, when Solomon finishes construction on the temple in Jerusalem, 1 Kings 8, we read that when the priests came out of the holy place, having put the Ark of the Covenant in the temple, a cloud filled the house of the Lord so that the priests could not stand to minister because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled the house. The climax of the book of Exodus is here in Exodus 40 because the most important thing that happens to Israel is not that they are rescued from slavery as wonderful as that is. The most important thing that happens to Israel is that their faithful covenant God comes to dwell with them. The supreme blessing and greatest good for Israel was not just rescue from slavery but rescue for God's presence. And that's where the book ends. God's redeemed His people and made it possible for His glorious presence to dwell among them again. So everything's wrapped up nicely then. We're basically back to Eden. Not quite. Despite all of the grace and goodness that God has shown His people, there is still a barrier between them and Him. One that kept them from the fullness of His presence. There's still the problem that God is holy and Israel is not. Remember, after their rebellion, God said that he wasn't going to go with sinful Israel to the promised land because if he did, he would consume them in his holiness like fire consumes stubble. And though he had indeed promised to go with them after Moses interceded, it didn't change the fact that there was still this problem of God's holiness in Israel's sin. How can a holy God dwell in the midst of an unholy people? The next book of the Bible, Leviticus, which I know is all your favorite, takes place as God dwells in the tabernacle and gives Moses instructions that are to govern Israel's worship. Leviticus begins with God in the tabernacle at Mount Sinai speaking to Moses saying, tell this to the people of Israel. Leviticus is filled with laws, commands, codes, but these are not the the arbitrary requirements of a nitpicky deity. They are all about how Israel will maintain holiness, ensure ritual uh, cleanness, make atonement for their sin so that God can dwell among them without killing them, which is no idle threat because we see in Leviticus 10 that Aaron's sons intentionally, presumptuously disobey God and how they approach them And God's holiness consumes them. If a holy God would dwell in the midst of an unholy people, there needs to be a way to deal with the unholiness of sin. 
And so the tabernacle would not only be the dwelling place of God's glory, the place of God's enthronement among the people, the place of God's revelation to the people, the place of God's mediation with the people, it would also be the God-ordained place of atonement for the people. This is God's gracious provision for Israel so that he can continue to dwell in their midst. The sacrifices that would take place at the tabernacle and especially the sacrifice on the Day of Atonement served as a constant reminder of the sin that alienates humanity from God and the penalty for that sin, which is death, and the means that God has provided to deal with that sin, the atoning death of a substitutionary sacrifice. And all these laws about sacrifices and atonement and cleansing and holiness served to teach Israel that though God did dwell in their midst and they did truly have a covenant relationship with Him, their sin still separated them from Him. They were not like Adam and Eve in the garden. There was still a barrier to the fullness of His presence. God was present, but not like in Eden. He was there, but you couldn't just make an appointment to go see Him. You certainly couldn't waltz in unannounced and uninvited. Uh, The people did not enjoy the unhindered, unbroken fellowship that they were created for. And as a reminder of this spiritual barrier, one of the features of the tabernacle and later the, the temple was a physical barrier, a thick curtain, a veil that separated the most holy place from the rest of the tabernacle, blocking the way to the place of God's presence. And God had instructed that on this veil were to be sown pictures of cherubim, recalling the cherubim that God had placed at the entrance to the Garden of Eden to guard the way to the tree of life. And here the cherubim embroidered on the veil reminded the people that their sin was a barrier to their access to God. To cross that barrier like trying to re-enter Eden would mean falling under the flaming sword of God's righteous judgment. Moreover, we learn in Leviticus 16 that the only person who could go behind the veil into the most holy place, into the very presence of God, was the high priest. And he could only do it once a year. And he could only do so if he had been ritually cleansed and made atoning sacrifices for his own sin and if he brought with him the blood of atonement to atone for the sins of the people, so that God might in his divine forbearance pass over their sins and continue to dwell in their midst without consuming them in his holiness. The tabernacle and later the temple show us God's ongoing desire to dwell among his people in covenant relationship. But it also shows us that this presence and this relationship is still not like it was in the garden. His presence is real, but it's provisional, not permanent. It's rescindable, not secure. It's conditional, not absolute. Later in Leviticus, in Leviticus 26, we read, God says this, I will make my dwelling among you. My soul shall not abhor you. I will walk among you and will be your God and you shall be my people. There's that covenant language again. But if you will not listen to me and will not do all of these commandments, if you break my covenant, then I will do this to you. What follows is a a lengthy list of, of covenant curses, things that will come upon Israel if they break covenant with God. It ends with this. I will scatter you among the nations, 
And I will unsheathe the sword, perhaps a reference to the flaming sword of God's judgment in Eden. I will unsheathe the sword after you, and your land shall be a desolation, and your cities shall be waste. That is, your sin can cause you to forfeit the blessing of God's dwelling among you again. He says to Israel, you can again be cast out of my presence and again be found under my judgment. The tabernacle and the temple provide a way for God to truly dwell among his people, but they also reinforce the reality of this barrier that continues to separate God and humanity. The tabernacle and the temple were provisional arrangements. They would not bring about the eternal, perfect, unbroken, and unbreakable fellowship that God desires to have with his people. For that, there would need to be a full and final atonement, a perfect redemption, a people who were totally cleansed and permanently sanctified, made holy and eternally set apart for His presence, from which they would never be cast out again. Such relationship would require a high priest who did not need to offer sacrifices for his own sin, one who could make himself a fully sufficient atonement one who could satisfy the flaming sword of God's judgment, one who could secure an eternal redemption, one who could not only go behind the veil on our behalf, but who could also invite us to join him behind the veil so that we might go with confidence and full assurance into the very presence of God and say, he is our God and we are his people and he dwells among us. Is that that the end of the book of Exodus and Leviticus looks forward to as we continue this story of God with us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are so incredibly gracious. You did not have to let Israel dwell with you. You did not have to give them means by which they could have you dwell in their midst without you consuming them. You've done it purely out of grace, your love and compassion and faithfulness. We see that ourselves in the fulfillment of all of these things in Jesus Christ. We pray, Lord, that you might, you might help us to think of you as you are. You might help us to remember that the greatest blessing of the gospel is not what we get but its relationship with you, the gift of your presence with us and in us. We pray that your word would do its work in us now by your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.